0: Hello, everyone. It's July 19th, 2022. This week we're doing Test Fest 2, a quick rundown of all the test firings, spin ups, and startups of the past week. Most went well, with one notable Starship booster sized exception, but that's why we test. But the show is ready to go, so let's light her up and lift off. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 368 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right, so I guess we're going to talk about JWST at the top of the show, right? So
1: might be worth a mention. <laughs> How about that? How, what do you think about? Uh, did it meet or exceed your expectations? Even as hyped up as it was?
2: Oh, I don't think I had expectations to to meet or exceed. But I'll tell you what: mm. um, my lock screen on my on my PC is now. Uh, the compass image from the, the cliffs of Etta Carina or uh, yeah. the Carina nebula. And um, they released a bunch of different images, like in different wavelengths, di- different ways of, of um, processing the data. And one of them, I think it's what they call like the compass version. And it's basically just, you know, a glamor shot with text on it. Um, and for the Carina nebula, the the cliffs of creation i forget what they're called um pillars of creation pillars of creation There you go yeah so dennis just put it in the in the discord um and and we'll have links to all this or it'll we'll have photos in the show notes just because who who can resist uh setting the social media share image to a jwst image but um (laughs) it's uh oh colin says yeah it's the cosmic cliffs we were we were halfway there um but they, they do this, this version of these images with, um, like black bars on top and bottom and some text and like a North arrow and just kind of like this nice, like PR version. And so what I did is my, my monitor is wider than the aspect ratio of the Korean nebula compass image. So I trimmed off the bottom so that it would exactly fit my monitors, uh, uh ratio. And so what it does is it's got the, the nebula at the bottom, like the cliffs at the bottom, and then a big black bar up at the top with uh yellow and white text. And it just looks so Star Trek. It's really mm-hmm. lovely.
1: Oh mine I, I, I gotta go with uh I love my galaxies. And the only thing I like more than uh galaxies are clusters of galaxies and so the first mm-hmm. one that mm-hmm. they released uh that that's definitely my favorite one there. And it's like, where's Waldo with how many different things there are in there? Everyone's going through and finding their favorite (laughs) galaxy. That's a ridiculous number of them. But yeah, that one was great.
0: So in the news, uh, we have a series of test fires, right? So this is Test Fest 2. We did a Test Fest 1 uh, not too long ago. So this is just kind of a rundown of what's going on in the world of uh, testing new rocket engines, mostly first stages, I think, here. So, I guess, first off, we'll talk about the ABL static fire. So, this was done at Kodiak, and this is uh, the RS1 first stage. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot to say, but, you know, I guess, again, since this is just a test fest rundown, we're, we're just going to quickly mention them. We'll talk a little bit longer about some of the other ones, but uh, this was a pretty much a good, successful test, so that's good. So, that means that there isn't much to talk about. So the um, nice. This was mostly just uh, to, you know, test um, the startup sequence, the ground systems were tested, and the portable launch stool, which I couldn't find a good photo of, but I think we've seen it before. Um, so this is, you know, again, this whole idea of having a small a uh, launch system that you can kind of, you know, just like take somewhere. So you put this out on a good flat surface, like they have a Kodiak and you can launch a rocket. So since that went so well, uh, the next step, uh, is integration with the second stage and a wet dress and then a launch. It sounded like it was going to happen pretty quickly, but there is no actual time yet. But, uh, the first, or I'm sorry, the upper stage was successfully tested back in May and that was following a prior loss. And I don't know if you remember, uh, this was the one that happened out in the Mojave Desert, the big boom. Right, Burn. right. And uh, everyone was kind of like, like if you watch it, it's kind of shocking. Like it seems like, oh man, someone just set off a nuke or something, but <laughs> it was a just a of, rocket.
1: A lot of black smoke, right? Uh, yeah, coming.
0: lots of lots of black smoke. But uh, they did do a successful test four months after that. So yeah, and that was due to a turbo pump hard start. And I don't know if we ever covered that because I, cause I remember we talked about the initial anomaly, but I don't know if we talked about exactly what caused it. So it was a hard start. Yeah. So no date for the wet dress, but it will be from that point forward, about four to six weeks in order to get the FAA approval. Cause you know how that always takes some time. So, I mean, it looks, it seems like probably by the end of the year for sure. Um, at least that's me being optimistic, but I don't see anything standing in their way. So, Cool. 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 Uh, You know, and this will be a 3D printed rocket. All right. So that's very neat. This is like one of those small companies that is, I mean, I think very exciting just because they're doing something really different. And I like to see a different.
1: They seem to have a lot of like the big legacy kind of people supporting them, too. So they Mm -hmm. definitely seem like one of these companies that can be successful. If I remember correctly, they raised a lot of money and have uh, uh, some connections with Lockheed, for example. (laughs) And so Hmm. uh, they're probably on the path to success assuming that they can make a rocket that makes it to orbit eventually and consistently. Yeah,
0: but yeah, they just have to integrate it with the second stage and do their wet dress and then they can launch it. I mean, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to, but I guess... Those are famous last words. Um, so <laughs> moving on to the second one in the Test Fest 2, uh, the RFA Static Fire. So this is a company I don't think we talk about much. I, I think, I think Dennis, you probably mentioned it more than anyone. Um, it, it, they kind of seemingly came out of nowhere. Um, so mm-hmm. this is, I think, a German or maybe just generally like a European conglomerate. I'm not sure, but I think it's a German company. And they are making a sage combustion engine, which is really cool because uh, that's never been done in Europe before. Um, mm-hmm. And the engine is called the Helix. And they had a 74-second test. This also was successful. And apparently, this is just the third commercially developed stage combustion engine. I guess the other one would be, you know, SpaceX did it. And then who's the other company? Does anyone know?
1: Stage combustion?
0: I guess maybe Blue Origin, right? Yeah,
1: Blue Origin, I think um, one of them is working on it. Yeah, yeah.
0: I can't think of anyone else who would be truly commercially developed stage combustion engine.
1: It's oxygen-rich, too.
0: Oh, is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice that. That's Yeah, I think that's something you had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that it's oxygen-rich, and that that is a bit odd. I mean, Russia's done that. That's about mm-hmm. it. And I guess it just comes down to the fact that they have the right alloys that can withstand those temperatures, that, you know, it's not an issue for them. Because uh, clearly it's not an issue for the Russian RD. What is it? The 181 engines are oxygen-rich, I, I believe. Well, so, is
2: on- the, so is the NK-33 or the the AJ-26, but... Not in use anymore (laughs) and still a Russian engine, but yeah, that that was uh, uh, although uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne also did the AR1, which was oxidizer rich.
1: And David, it's the RD 170, I believe. RD
0: 170, okay, yeah, the
1: the 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 king of engines. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Um, but none of those, I mean, obviously, I mean, you could probably do multiple restarts. Um, and I believe that that is the intention for this engine, but it's not. I'm just gonna assume that it's not very reusable, or it doesn't even have a chance of being a reusable engine if it does run oxygen rich, because even though it can do this, I imagine that still pretty quickly, right? You're you're gonna have some oxidation of uh, the engine. That's it's mm-hmm. just not gonna. Yeah, I don't know if this is something that's ever been tested for that particular purpose. Um, mm-hmm. But reusable rockets are still fairly new.
2: Well, I think I think reusable. Blue Origin. Yeah. So the the BE four on the Vulcan isn't gonna be reused, right? But you'd think that Blue Origin would be targeting reusability. I don't know, they might have diverged from it just to get uh, BE4 out. Oh, Vulcan is still doing the the parachuting. I For some reason, I thought that they had uh, they had dropped that part of the mission.
1: I ain't going to lie. Cool. I had no idea that was ever in the cards. I
2: remember we talked about it on the show, like they're doing like air capture.
0: Is that the one where they're doing the air capture of just the engines?
2: Yeah, it's called Smart Reuse. I just uh, looked yeah. it up on Wikipedia. Sensible, modular, autonomous return technology. They separate the engines and then just capture those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh um, my God,
1: I know. I definitely hadn't heard of that. That's they actually
2: really cool. need a uh, um, a heat shield for it, but it's uh, a future, a future use. Uh, let's see. In April, 2021, Tori Bruno said that the additional launches purchased by Amazon for the Kuiper satellite constellation would require higher launch cadence and that this provided support for the business case to go forward with smart. Okay. So I don't, I don't think they're going to do it to begin with, but it'll be cool. Not as cool as, uh. What was the European concept? It had like.
0: Oh, the Adelaide or whatever it's called. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, the
2: Adelaide. That sounds about right. Yeah.
0: It's something, but I don't know if that's the word, but yeah. So for uh, the RFA static fire test, they did a four-second initial test. Uh, Then they kind of ramped it up to 30 seconds and then a 40-second test. Uh, And they were all successful. And they throttled the engine up to uh, 130% of the nominal design point. Uh, Those are the words used, nominal design point, Hmm. which I guess is, you know, like, I feel like NASA would say 130% of, uh, what do they say, maximum rated efficiency or something like that? Oh, that sounds Hmm. official. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. so uh, no problems there, and they are expecting an integrated systems test by the end of the year. So uh, very good for that company. Um, And yeah, I guess we should probably keep an eye on them uh, because, again, we just haven't talked about them much, and they're doing Mm -hmm. a staged combustion engine, which is, you know, no small feat.
1: And related to you talking about the the engine cycle, uh, apparently their, their approach is to try to use a lot of COTS components and just keep production costs down and that's going to be their way to, I don't know, try to make money since (laughs) it's going to be very competitive small launch
0: um, market. Mm -hmm. And then next up, we have the super heavy, the inadvertent static fire. So this was, uh, I think you put, someone put foomph, which is a good yep. description of the bad. sound. <laughs> just as just a big quick, uh, like someone just lit a match in a methane gas filled room, which is kind of what happened. Um, except it wasn't a room, but you can kind of imagine what that's like. So it did look like, you know, just, oh, some gas got ignited that had building up. It wasn't so much the engines themselves, but something that was just um. coming off. And I wasn't sure. So, okay. So first off, this was, um, All part of a spin start test. So they were just doing a spin start, right? So they weren't going to ignite the engines, but they were going to get them up to that point. And this was for all 33 Raptor engines on the booster, um, which was booster seven. And the speculation is that evaporating methane must have ignited. So I was wondering, evaporating methane. So that's just, you know, methane coming off of uh, fuel lines or something. Like where was this evaporating from? Like it was just being infilled into the tank and then it was, you know, like gradually boiling off. And that's where it came from because I was thinking that maybe. Since, you know, they were using methane, that maybe the spin start might have kicked out a little bit of methane, but I guess that wouldn't happen.
1: Yeah, I I think
2: it's a great question.
1: No, I want to actually ask a basic question. Um, Mm -hmm. While I have a vague idea of what it could mean, could you describe what a spin start means? I have to imagine somebody listening doesn't know, (laughs) because I don't.
0: Well, I don't know the exact... Yeah, so as far as I understand, they were basically just getting the turbo pumps spun up.
2: Yeah, that was my assumption too. So do they use apply some like power
1: source outside to spin them without actually having combustion spinning them.
2: I think first off we can quote Elon Musk's tweet where he said, Raptor has a complex start sequence. So it's, is not going to be something easy, but yeah, I don't, mm. I don't believe that they have an external power source. Um And we didn't, we didn't see any flashy colors and you can't hear, I don't know. The NSF footage might be from too far away, but you can't hear, like a normal uh, turbo pump spin-up sound. Normally, you can't hear it because the engine is starting up and making a bunch of noise. Um, mm. But I think like one of the Atlas rockets, uh, you could hear those as it mm-hmm. spun up. And so you can't hear that, and there's no com- you know normal engine combustion to to compete with it. So the, the cameras must be pretty far away, or maybe it doesn't make that sound. Maybe it didn't get up to speed. Who knows? But as far as I know, they they don't have... An external power source. Just
0: for
1: testing it is what I was thinking.
2: Yeah, but right, exactly. Like, it's a really good question, and it's not one that I was able to find a good answer to.
0: Yeah, so it says, um, at least I'm seeing one answer randomly on SpaceX Lounge. It's a subreddit, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, it says that they use gas-fed into the turbine section of each pump to spin up the pump initially and to get the propellant flowing through the pump section. So,
2: Okay, gas. That That's a very generic gas statement like
0: so i th- I, th- I think it's just like pressure fed gas which pretty much you know causes the pump to spin there's not necessarily combustion happening um, but that gets the propellant flowing um from there how they ignite it I'm not sure um, but that wouldn't be too hard once you have uh, the methane and oxygen mixing with each other I wouldn't think that could be done on the ground, right? Some kind of a spark igniter or something. I don't know. Cool.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> that, that, that's helpful.
0: So the spin start, you know, they use this pressure fed gas, get the pump spinning. And I think that that's all that was meant to happen. Mm-hmm. So, well, okay. So this brings up the question. Why did they have methane then? Because they weren't going to be igniting them. I guess they just wanted to recreate those conditions precisely, um, mm-hmm. and make sure that the methane would be properly pumped. But into what? I don't know. Like, I, I mean, yeah, there's just some questions that I have. So I don't mm-hmm. see why they would need the liquid methane uh, on site, at least to do this test. Uh, it says here that they seem to have been using helium for spin up, but the long term plan is to use high pressure propellant gas stored in the COPVs to do it. Okay, okay so maybe. Cause
1: yeah, yeah. Because Elon says this particular issue was specific to the engine spin start test. Mm-hmm. So there's something about how that test is supposed to be run that I guess must involve. Methane if the issue is methane igniting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well so it's so it seems that possibly what it might be is that uh they will actually use uh the methane to start them up. So they will use gaseous methane to get those pumps moving. And if that's the case then you can see why that happened.
1: Didn't they just have a uh like a methane flare on the site that caused the fire somewhere at Starbase? Not on the not on a pad, but like within a month or so. I'm
0: not sure.
2: Oh, within a month. I remember something like that, but it sounds earlier to me. Okay. Month.
1: May I misremembering. Or oh no, that was related sorry, that was related to um Terran, uh, Relativity's Rocket. Oh. That was at the Cape. Never mind, so entirely different location. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. So in Tim Dodd's interview with Elon Musk, uh, Elon was talking about this uh, this complex start sequence. And you know, when I when I read complex start sequence, I'm thinking, oh, you know, magical Kind of stuff, but actually it's, it's pretty much exactly what you would expect for a, a fully, a full flow stage combustion engine. Um, he said you got this delicate dance between the fuel power head and the oxygen power head because they're locked together. They're on this, you know, they're driven on the same shaft. And so while you're starting up, it's, it's really hard, um, to stay, uh, stoichiometric and keep the same amount of each propellant flowing, and if you miss one or the other, you melt or you wind up melting or exploding your your hardware.
0: Although I thought that he said that it was that the reason why it was difficult was because they were not on the same shaft. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, is that what you're going to say? Sorry. No, I, I
2: thought I was
1: going to say, and this might be my ignorance. I thought they want to stay off stoichiometric.
0: Well, they do. They want to stay off stoichiometric for the pumps themselves because you know, like if they were, then they would completely slag yes. those pumps. Right. So. You can't yeah, you can't yes. cool the pumps
1: the way you could cool the combustion right. chamber and the nozzle. Yeah,
2: you're exactly right. I I I swapped it around. Uh, Merlin, uh, they're on the same shaft. And so if that shaft is spinning it's sucking the same in from both. And so for for a raptor, you've got to you got to make sure that they're balanced. Um and then, you know, it gets worse because they're one is feeding the other because they, you know, run fuel rich and then they run oxidizer rich and then mix the final product comes from the pre, from the pre burners. So it, hmm. everything's interconnected and you really get a lot of, but yeah, I, I'm reading through the, uh, through the transcription of that video and I don't see Elon talking about actually starting them spinning. And I don't see him saying anything, uh, particularly complicated. That's, that's not just the, all of the things that we know are inherent to this type of engine.
1: I mean, I, I know it's, I know it's different, but I, I just envision Uh, because how much uh, details are available about how the SSMEs started, Mm -hmm. and that was very complicated (laughs) to say the least. So every time I hear about the complex start sequence of a Raptor, I'm just envisioning Mm -hmm. that kind of thing where you got, this thing needs to go on within, you know, 10 milliseconds and then followed by this thing running up 20 milliseconds later. And I don't know, it's just, it's just chaos. It sounds like.
0: So that didn't go according to plan. Uh, I guess that's the conclusion there.
2: Elon on Twitter said they weren't going to do spin start tests of all 33 engines at the same time. And I was wondering, didn't, didn't we already expect them to do like a stage startup sequence anyway? Like, were they ever going to start all these guys all at once? And if not, why would they test all of them at once?
0: And that is correct. Is, I mean, as far as I remember, the only question I had was that maybe since this is just a spin start test, they would do them all at once. But I mean, then again, you raise a good point that what's the point in doing that if they're not going to ever do that for like an actual launch? So... I don't know. Yeah, you really run the risk of having uh,
2: free fuel floating around and blowing up your engines. Mm -hmm. I would think. Because
0: yeah, I was just
1: thinking that if 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 that didn't go wrong, then yeah, sure, you just test them all at once in one go. You just save yourself time. You could get it. You could get onto the next thing, right? You got to go fast when you're SpaceX. But um. But I guess that risk wasn't quite budgeted into this decision. <laughs> and so
2: I thought SpaceX knew better to test what you fly, fly what you test. But there, there's probably some reasoning here that we're, that we're not exposed to.
1: That's an understatement <laughs> 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 for us now. Um, yeah. So, because so, I don't know. Uh, do you know what the staging would be? For I don't know exactly. Super
2: heavy? Mm. Like symmetric groups, you'd think.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't it be like the outer engine, or like, you know, maybe the inner engines? Just and- maybe two
1: chunks. Outer and inner?
0: Concentric rings or something. Something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember exactly what the configuration is, but I think something like that. I mean, that's the only thing that wouldn't make sense to me. Although you could do it in other ways. I mean... Yeah, you could do all kinds of different patterns. Uh,
2: Spell out somebody's name.
1: I was going to say, with that many, it could literally, yeah, be like one of those laser light shows. Um.
0: (laughs) Which, you know, being SpaceX, I wouldn't be surprised if they did do that, you know, like it spells out someone's (laughs) initials or something. Don't put it past them. So there was also a tweet that at least a couple of new Raptors were spotted. Um. Although I think there is still some speculation if this was for uh, the booster right. 7 or maybe for some other one. So it could yeah. be that they needed to replace them. But um, yeah, we don't have any real firm word yet on if there was any real damage done to the booster or even the launch site itself um it yeah. seems like things were more or less fine and just stuff just kind of got blown around a little bit
2: yeah and it's it's kind of crazy cuz like if you look at the photos of the the bottom of B7 there are like these big fairings for the COPVs the carbon over at pressure vessels and those are the big chunky like triangular kind of stuff that's on the side. But then there are also like these small little fairings just for the engines, like the top of the, the, the top half, you know, above the, uh, the engine nozzle, they kind of stick out on the side. And some of those things like apparently blew off. Um, so, uh, but, but as bad as that looks, that doesn't necessarily correlate with actual damage that, you know, that's really easy. It's a, it's a long joint, with a lot of surface area that it's holding back. And it's, you know, it's just a welded joint that can get blown off by overpressure.
1: Yeah, it looks like uh, engines 21 and 24 have uh, some damage or something sustained to their their nozzles. Like
2: it's slumped. Looks, they got, looks like they got hit with paint stripper and, I don't know, a box knife. Somebody swung a crowbar at them.
1: Now, one person's responding, though, to that saying that those have been there since rollout and they're cables that have been taped on there. Oh, interesting. So what looks like slumped nozzle might just be dark cables, and then what looks like white streaks cutting through the nozzle might be <laughs> tape dark holding tape. those. Because mm-hmm. I guess if they're not going to fire, it doesn't matter if you have cables literally just sitting there.
2: Yeah. I mean, looking at it, yeah, I think I think that might be right, because it, it looks like...
0: Yeah, it definitely looks like it tape. It looks
2: like they <laughs> spread... Yeah, the silver looks like tape, and then the way that it spreads out, it looks like they... They spread like a thermal conductive paste or something.
1: You can even see a zip tie, I think, on one of the, on 21 on the bottom right. I think I see a zip tie there. So rounding out test fest is uh, the only non uh, firing or, you know, again, inadvertent firings included. Uh, But Ariane 6, this is, this is an upcoming test, but it's basically on its way to check out or to test the ground support equipment. And so it sounds basically like a wet dress rehearsal. to an extent, um, where they're going to be filling tanks, uh, draining them, uh, in ca- like in the you know scenario of a launch abort, uh, they're going to do their countdown automated sequence. Uh, they're going to. Work out, they're going to test the cryogenic arm uh, disconnection and retraction uh, as though they were going to lift off. And so, yeah, ground support equipment and tanks and cryogenics. And so what I thought was most interesting about this is what they're actually testing. So the Ariane 6 has um, uh, the core stage and the upper stage already kind of checked out. And so they've been, you know, stacked in the, uh, the launcher assembly building. And then attached to them, so the difference between the Ariane 6 and the Ariane 5, I mean, among other things, is that they have four side uh, four boosters, and those and these boosters are actually the Vega C uh, first stage, if I remember correctly. Right. And so right now, though, uh, rather than having four boosters there, they've got three pylons that are shaped like solid boosters. And then they've got one fully representative but inert mock-up of a looster. And so if you look at pictures, I'll let you try to figure out which one's which. (laughs) If you look at the kind of, uh, it's not so much, I guess, an angled nose. I don't know what you call that exactly. I think there's a better word than that. But the the top part of it, I think, is the only thing that looks different between the the total fake ones and then the mock-up. And so they've, they've assembled it, uh, you know, things will probably evolve between now and the 48 hours uh, before this goes to air, but the uh, the pad equipment, they already started to get that ready by testing some of the umbilicals and whether they could handle the cryogenics uh, well or not, which is, you know, good and important as we saw with SLS, you know, your tests can go awry when you have these uh, much more mundane things related to plumbing. And so, yeah, and so the next steps are to add the uh, a fairing and what I assume they mean is a simulated payload so maybe one of these cool kind of things you were talking about david where you've got the uh well they have very fancy Orion spots has very fancy uh <laughs> payload attached fittings <laughs> where you can mm-hmm. have uh multiple payloads attached uh in different ways like big ones not so much just a uh, like an esper ring or anything as simple as that and then they also are gonna plan on doing a firing at the launch pad uh not taking off but just doing a uh you know a static firing at the pad to make sure everything's looking good there
0: so that'll be cool to see because i feel like Ariane 6 has been talked about for so many years so it's nice Mm. to see it finally get this close you know
1: yeah yeah beautiful looking rockets so
0: yeah All right, so let's move on to three short and sweet. Dennis, what is the first?
1: New robotic arm for ISS. Japanese startup Gitai is planning for a robotic arm demonstration on NanoRacks' Bishop Airlock in 2023. After achieving Technology Readiness Level 6, or TRL-6, earlier this year with vacuum chamber tests, the company believes it can achieve TRL-7 for its second arm, named S2, with the on-orbit demo. This won't be the first time Gitai has been to the ISS. In 2021, the startup's first arm, S-1, demonstrated its ability to assemble structures and operate switches while inside Bishop. Gitai will be joining the three robotic arms on orbit, Canadarm2, the Japanese Experiment Module Remote Manipulator System, or RMS, and the new European robotic arm, ERA. All
2: right, next, uh, Rogozan moves on. The General Director of Roscosmos has been the same person since 2018, the ever-outspoken Dmitry Rogozin. This week, Rogozin was dismissed, and Yuri Borisov, the former Deputy Prime Minister, was installed in his place. This personnel change came the same day as the seat exchange agreement with NASA was finalized, and it seems likely that the change was planned out, but on hold, pending the agreement. Starting in September, Integrated Crews will be flying for the first time on Crew Dragon and resuming on
0: And thirdly, Capstone completes second TCM. With the consumption of only 35 grams of fuel, Capstone completed its second trajectory correction maneuver, or TCM, after holding off several days to assess the vehicle's orbit after its first TCM. This small firing lasted 53 seconds and took place while the spacecraft was 789,000 kilometers from the Earth. Significantly smaller than the first maneuver... This one completes the corrective actions needed after a spacecraft separation from the lunar photon vehicle and demonstrates more precise maneuvering that will be needed for injection into its final near-rectilinear halo orbit around the moon. And it's uh, still communicating, so...
2: Yes. (laughs) Okay, stand by We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a correction this week from Dennis, so take it away.
1: <laughs> well, just the last week's twist was, I thought, so cool. So I found a uh, uh, a presentation that was given uh, only a few months into the pandemic by uh, the person who I guess was the head of that uh, Mishap Review Board, uh, Chris Hansen, who is, uh, of course, a NASA Chris Hansen and not the, uh, oh, yeah. the Dateline <laughs> NBC Chris Hansen. Because the second I heard that name, I'm like, that sounds familiar. So It did
0: sound familiar. It's
1: not Mr., you know. Please have a seat over here. But yeah, so anyway, it it was a really cool presentation uh, that he was giving. And like I said, this was only in 2020, so this was years afterwards, and he was reviewing it for uh, it seemed like there was a combination of students, uh, engineering students, as well as the public. Uh, But in any event, one thing I thought was neat was that, Ben, you in your investigation had pointed out that uh, how the uh, particulates were entered wrongly into the system, and it wasn't clear exactly what. Uh, they did wrong on the ground processing, but that they did something Mm. wrong in the ground process on the ground processing. And it turns out that it was this uh, the ionic filter uh, as part of the filter filtration system that's supposed to not get you know after the big things are removed, this will go and get the uh, the small little uh, bits of stuff that David was talking about. And it turns out that they had saturated them on the ground because they (laughs) should have been using deionized water, like clean, pure deionized water, to run through the system during this ground processing, but instead they were using, in his words, Houston water. And uh, he yeah. then jokes that Houston water, uh, you don't want to think about what's in there. And so that <laughs> turned out to be the issue.
0: Uh. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be worse if it was Florida water. Can you imagine like that would...
2: I mean, one way or the other, yeah, municipal water in the US is, is pretty good with some notable exceptions. It's pretty good, mm-hmm. but it, it's... Still municipal water. (laughs) Like, it's still tap water.
0: (laughs) All right. So, this week in spaceflight history, we have five winners. We have Hydrak, Deskin, Peter McMally, the Greek, in Sycheil. So, congratulations. Now, do they all get full credit, I assume? All of them, full credit. Cool.
1: There weren't many layers to the clue, so. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This was more straightforward. Um, And a good clue, now that I know what the actual event was. So, the clue was uh, electrocoxycs. So, I knew that coccyx meant tailbone, but beyond that, I didn't know. But now that I know the event, it totally makes sense. So, yeah, good clue.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I came up with another one that was more descriptive of the event, but there was like nothing fun to it. And it wasn't a clue so much as just a weird random statement. And so, uh, yeah, I decided to go with electrococcyx, which is referencing the Earth's electrococcyx or, or geotail, you might call it. And this was the 24th of July, 1992, and it was the launch of the geotail spacecraft. And so uh, what this is referencing, right, the geotail is the Earth has a magnetic field, and it also has a big ball of Plasma in the center of the solar system blowing stuff out. And as a result, that magnetic field gets swept in the anti-solar direction and creates a big old tail. And by big old, I mean it extends past the moon. Um, I think there's been semi-recent studies about how it's actually impacted the lunar surface by bombarding it with material that gets entrained in the magnetic field lines. And so anyway, that's what electrocoxics is referencing, right, the electro, uh, referencing the electromagnetism that's happening uh, along the magnetic field lines, and then the coccyx is indeed, like you called out, like on air uh, last week, uh, the tailbone. I was thinking magnetococcix, but that might have been just two on the nose. And so electrococcyx, I thought. Okay. Yeah. Cause to.
0: I was thinking that too. Like maybe magnetococcix, but yeah, you're right. Yeah,
1: but the EM forces, that's fair enough. So, yeah. So, so Geotail, uh, it, it was a, a joint collaboration, or I should say is a joint collaboration. Um, well, I guess it was, between the Institute of Space and Astronautical Studies, or ISAS, uh, which you might recognize uh, from the bureaucratic Voltron, TWISIF. Uh That was one of the three organizations that got wrapped up into JAXA in 2003. And so basically, this was a, uh, a Japanese uh, and NASA collaboration. NASA was the other major, uh, major partner on board. And so, um, yeah, ISAS uh, originally was... Uh, handling the Japanese size and then eventually, uh, uh, JAXA of course took over once uh, they were there and they seem to be managing it more um, now that it's been on orbit and just turned 30 so uh, happy birthday uh, Geotail it's still active <laughs> to give that away at the beginning Is part of a larger program uh, where you might have heard of some of these spacecraft but there's a whole bunch of things that we've been sending around to study the earth and the solar wind and the interaction between the two and so this program is called the International Solar Terrestrial Physics or ISTP program and so so it includes great hits such as wind uh which is also still active uh soho of course which is a really really cool one uh and then these ones that i hadn't heard of before interball which just sounds fun uh polar cluster uh and equator s and so i don't know about those uh probably going to end up being future twists uh, potentially as we continue to go and in- Go through more and more events. <laughs> the uh, pickings sometimes get a little slimmer. Yeah, and so Geotail, though uh, specifically, uh, right, was meant to study the Earth's uh, magnetic tail, as well as these uh, these magnetic storms called substorms that happen within it. And so it was going to go cruising through there a lot. And a few few years earlier, uh, Japan uh, basically launched a similar type of investigator, uh, Akebono, where that one was going to focus on the aurora, uh, which is you know happening because of the Earth's magnetic field interacting with uh, the atmosphere. But, you know, you're going to have these two spacecraft giving a lot of, you know, commensurate, complementary type of data. The way the partnership worked was uh, ISAS built the, uh, the spacecraft and two-thirds of the instruments, and... and did and continues to do under JAXA, the spacecraft operations. And while NASA provided the launch vehicle, uh, as a Delta II, I'll talk a little bit about that later, uh, and provided uh, one third of the instruments. And so it was a nice little partnership in that regard. And the instruments were what you would expect if you wanted to study uh, the Earth's uh, magnetic uh, field and magnetic tail. And so there were uh, five sets of them, but The coolest ones, I think, uh, you know, were these, uh, these two, uh, six meter long booms that had the magnetometers on there. So, uh, you want to make that differential measurement. So you get the, you know, the one magnetometer at the end of the six meters and the other one, I think, was four meters away from the spacecraft. Um, but then this is really blowing my mind, uh, this other one. And I think it's also, uh, never show it's never drawn to scale in any pictures that you get about Geotail, where I had to basically go digging to see if this number was right. But apparently, the other kind of main thing that you see when you look at the spacecraft are these four antennas sticking out. But they were 40 meters, or sorry, 50 meters, uh they extended 50 meters out from the spacecraft themselves. So that's 100 meters from tip to tip for these antennas. And... Again, I guess just when it comes to really large things in space, right? <laughs> you hear me talk about the, uh, shuttle, uh, radar, to- uh, topography experiment <laughs> or topography mission and how cool that was because it had a huge antenna sticking out the side of the payload bay. Well, this one had these, you know, very large, uh, I mean, they were just wires, essentially. I shouldn't say just wires, but really they were wires. And so, um, the, the difference between them where their names were the one pair was called, uh, Pant, P-A-N-T, and the other one was called Want, W-A-N-T. I do not know what those stand for. I assume the A and T uh, is antenna, but I don't know what the P and the W are referencing in any of the uh, source material I could find on them. So, but in any event, one of them had these uh, these spheres at the side, at the ends of them. The other one didn't have those spheres at the side. So they, they were there to measure the electromagnetic uh, field uh, based on the uh, the voltage uh, 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 that was being you know drawn through the antennas. Now, since I already started talking about the instruments, the spacecraft itself—the uh, bus—was a, uh, you know, a cylinder, uh, a drum uh, that was 2.2 meters in diameter and 1.6 meters high. Um, it had body-mounted solar panels, so no big solar panel, uh, no big solar panels sticking out of it, just these antennas. Um, and it was spin-stabilized, and is still zipping around to this day, or spinning around to this day. And it was uh, a little over a ton at launch, with uh, uh, almost a third of that weight uh, in propellant. And it uses, uh, you know, to be active for three decades, uh, it used a uh, indium liquid metal field ion emitter. And so uh, that specifically was its uh, you know, propulsion system. And uh, it being a fairly deep space uh, craft, uh, I'll talk about its orbit uh, later, but, uh, you know, it, it communicates with the deep space network. So if you go to, you know, uh, NASA Eyes has a, a DSN uh, website where you can see what all the different DSN antennas are. Uh, are communicating with right now, the different dishes. And so sometimes you'll see uh, Geotail uh, downlinking uh, some information there. And so that's cool. And then uh, there's also uh, one uh, uh, in Japan, because, again, you've got JAXA, who's running most of the operations on this. And so uh, they have the uh, Usuda Deep Space Center, uh, which is pretty cool. It's located uh, in uh, the mountains of uh, Nagado, which you might have heard of if you're familiar with uh, different Olympic games. And so... uh, they're they're pretty high up there, it seems. Now, uh the spacecraft, like I uh, said before, was uh, launched on a Delta II. And so uh this specific configuration was a sixty nine six nine two five, where uh right there's always all these different <laughs> uh uh, uh naming schemes for how you uh, uh get the, the those digits that follow uh these um these ULA type <laughs> uh launchers um although was Delta 2 ULA at the time or was it let's see oh McDonald Douglas
2: 92 yes yeah, before ULA
1: in any event i think it's fun to talk about what those digits are now there was a uh, 6000 and 7000 series uh where the 6000 where the 7000 series had a different uh, modified first stage as well as uh uh, uprated, uh, gem solid strap-on motors from Alliant. And so that's what that was referencing there. So that's the six, uh, in the 6925. Uh, the second, second digit is the number of boosters. Uh, so it had nine, uh, strap-on boosters. And then the third digit was always a two, uh, referencing the, uh, the upper stage engine, which was an AJ10. And then the fourth digit was the one that had the most kind of variety, it seemed, where, uh, it was referencing the, uh, the third stage. So you either had a zero, if there was no third stage, uh, a five, if you had a PAM, uh, a payload assist module, which, uh, right, was good for heaving things beyond the moon's orbit, because <laughs> you want to go study Geotail. And, uh, it would also have a six if it was a star 37 FM, uh, motor. So they wanted to heave this thing really far out there. It was, it's, so it's in a HEO, which, uh, we don't talk about too often, but I've seen high Earth orbit but I also see a high high ellipticity orbit. I don't know which one's better. <laughs> I like the high ellipticity orbit.
0: Yeah, I always assumed it meant high Earth orbit, but mm-hmm. yeah, you don't see that very often.
1: Yeah, Wikipedia goes with the ellipticity orbit, but um, I've seen other sources, though, that refer to it as high Earth orbit, which I wonder if, again, it's that sort of... Because um, you could talk about a high Earth orbit, but... At least, whether that's HEO or not.
0: Yeah. Well, our, so are all, I mean, it wouldn't have to be the case, but are all high Earth orbits, um, highly, highly elliptical? elliptical? Yeah. Cause I'm seeing here that, you know, some examples include Molniya orbits and, um, uh, tundras and you know and those are very elliptical like highly elliptical mm. so it seems like is there a use case for a non circular a more circular orbit yeah right do
1: they ever put anything
2: there i don't know. i don't i don't know if we have ever put anything there we might in the future but in general once you start getting above geo you start having interactions with the moon that make it not a great place to be mm. and like i don't i don't know what the relationship is between like stability versus versus altitude like, I don't know at what point it really starts getting into, you know, mission, mm-hmm. mission duration kind of area, but. And if you don't want
1: the benefits from geo, right. but you still want, I don't know, to have like, you know, a wide coverage of, you know, the whole disk of the earth, then at that point you typically dump them into Lagrange points. <laughs> and so. Yeah. Uh, anyway, just, yeah, musing about that because I never really, it seems like a messy kind of mm-hmm. uh, distinction between, yeah, what Geo really is. But as far as this distant orbit right so it, it used what they called the, a uh, double lunar swing by trajectory to essentially pump its Apogee out to 220 earth radii and so we're talking uh, you know comfortably beyond the orbit of the moon and so this was called the distant tail orbit and it operated in there for the first uh, I don't know two and a half years or so and uh, it would still again this high uh, highly elliptical high eccentricity orbit means that even though it would be its Apogee was 220 Earth radii. Its perigee was only eight Earth radii, so it would come in nice and close. These apogees did change uh, each time. They uh, basically, uh, I found one source that had a list of the different apogees for the first, I don't know, dozen or so of them. It, it would change because they kept wanting to make sure that they would be, you know, an apogee at the tail, again, when you're on the anti-solar side of the Earth, right, in the Earth's shadow, because that's where the tail's going to be. So if you wanted to d- dive through the tail, you needed to you know, adjust the timing of your orbit to make sure you're at apogee when you were, you know, in the tail. And so, uh, even though I, you know, quote 220 Earth radii, there was a lot of that variety there. Uh, but then in February of 95, it went into what is called its near tail orbit, which I believe it's still there to this day. And that's a nine by 30 Earth radius orbit. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see that, uh, Sai Kyle in the chat had put, uh, uh, a link to one of these, uh, uh, visualizations of currently active satellites. And there's a few of them that are fun. And yet, indeed, you should be able to find uh, Geotail. Uh, I know I was able to look it up on uh, Astria beforehand, but yeah, Kyle's helpfully identified it on um, what looks like Satellite Explorer. And so we can share this link in the show notes for sure. So this is a, uh, it, it's still cooking to this day. Uh, again, if you go to NASA Eyes uh, DSN, you can uh, check out I mean, that's just fun to see what DSN is communicating with at any given time. But you can specifically uh, see Geotail there sometimes. And as far as the science, uh, you know, that's not uh, my – I've never studied uh, the magnetic field all that much. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot uh, of great things that you can imagine having uh, 30 years of – uh uh, measurements. Uh, there, there were a lot of things that they were able to discover because, uh, again, it was part of this uh, part of this larger ecosystem of spacecraft, where they would identify um, a flare happening, say, uh, at you know, a coronal mass ejection, and then seeing how that would affect the uh, substorms that Geotail was measuring over here, uh, closer to Earth. Or they would find differences uh, depending on whether or not the sunspots, right, which are formed by the uh, sun's magnetic field puncturing the surface and then coming back. Uh, through, Because they puncture the surface, that inhibits convection there, which cools it, and thus it looks uh, darker relative to the disk around it, although the, the sunspot itself is still very, very bright, if you could just see it with your eyes, without contrast. But in any event, uh, that uh, those sunspots being near the center of the sun's disk uh, basically uh, affect the, uh, I guess, the wind uh, that reaches us, and thus affects uh, what happens to the uh, Earth's magnetic tail over where... Geotail is. And so, yeah, so that's the electrocoxis. We'll see if that uh, catches on as a nickname for the spacecraft, but otherwise, yeah, it's really uh, you know, these ones that might not you know, uh, uh, Geotail and wind uh, might not be as well known as some of these other satellites, but they have been putting in their work, and so we're talking mm-hmm. hundreds, if not a couple thousand uh, papers written on Geotail research uh, that I was able to see, kind of combing through the literature, so really cool stuff.
0: It's got some durability there. I mean, it's been 30 years in orbit. Like, mm, that's yeah. pretty good. So I can imagine and, there are quite a few papers.
1: Right, right. And purposely diving through mm-hmm. a magnetic field <laughs> where there's going to be a higher particle flux, I imagine than just the rest of space. The rest of cis-lunar space,
0: if that is what we call it. <laughs> Callback. <laughs> awesome little twist. Of, and next week, Ben, you have the next one and the date range is the 26th through the 1st of August. And you have a clue for us?
2: I do. Next week in 1961, the clue is 12 prime. Mm.
0: Sounds like a math problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. You take you you sum the first 12 prime numbers. Right. You yeah. feed that into a Bible code style document and uh, pull out the clue. Yeah. So there, I basically gave you the solution already. <laughs> I
2: was definitely feeling more of a horde prime kind of vibe, but yeah, well. We can go with
0: that. All right. Well, if anyone out there thinks that they know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. we got four events, and uh, most of them launches. Well, three out of four, I think. <laughs> three
1: out of four ain't bad. Two
0: out of four. Oh, okay. Sorry. Two <laughs> out of four. Well, three three out four. Of
2: four. <laughs> right. It's getting worse. You better <laughs> let me start before we run out of launches. All right. First up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 flying Starlink Group 3-2. So this is the very beginning... Of the, uh, the third shell. Uh, I know it's funny. We jumped up to the fourth shell. So the shell three is actually the fourth shell, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. lower altitude. And that's going to be flying on July 21st. That's a Thursday uh, at 1713 hours UTC. This is flying out of Vandenberg. And I believe this is the 11th launch of this booster. I was reading a, a news article earlier. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Uh, Starlink, Vandenberg, Falcon 9,
0: Thursday. And then on that same day, July 21st, we have an SLS SRB test fire. So these are always cool. And um, something that you cannot see on NASA TV, apparently, because I checked, didn't see any mention of it. But there is actually um, a Facebook live chat like where you can ask questions and things like that. Plus, there is also uh, the Marshall Space Flight Center YouTube channel. And so that will begin at 2.55 p.m. Eastern Time. So, uh, yeah, you can watch it that way, which is how most people would watch it anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, check out that booster test fire, because those are always fun to watch. They are incredibly loud. I guess to get the experience, you would have to be there, but, you know, still.
1: And then the third thing happening on that very busy Thursday is coverage of a spacewalk. And so this is VKD-54. Or the Russian EVA-54. And uh, it will feature Oleg Artemyev. And I believe her first uh, spacewalk, at least... uh... Uh, on this particular mission, uh, uh expedition, uh, Samantha Cristoforetti. Bringing in Samantha because after all, this is related to kidding out the European robotic arm. Again, this is, uh, Thursday, July 21st with coverage starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And it may, it's nominally going to be six and a half hours. And it first involves, uh, basically rotating the little control panel that they have outside for the robotic arm, uh, the external man-machine interface, or EMMI. Uh, They're also going to put some TV cameras on the arm, and then they're going to monitor the arm grabbing something, hopefully for the first time, a uh, an adapter for a portable worksite. And then what I'm the most excited about is if all that goes well, they need to make sure that the EMMI works, even though it's only supposed to be for contingencies, but as part of checking it out, they're going to want to use it as uh, for testing. And so, yeah, they'll basically be controlling the robotic arm using this little panel on the side of nauka
2: and that control panel we were looking at it a week or two ago and we're pretty sure that it does it's at least capable of doing joint by joint control you know single joint Mm. control rather than saying move the head this many inches Mm. left centimeters left which is a, a much more reasonable way of controlling it but it looks like there's enough buttons that you can put it into single joint mode and and really finesse this thing then finally there's going to be a long march 5b launching wentian the first um uh laboratory cabin module is what they're calling it um this is the second uh, major component of the Chinese space station. Um, and it's got a, a bunch of niceties that you want on orbit, uh, as well as some backup functions uh, for the core module. Uh, that's going to be launching. Uh, we've got a little bit of a window here, but it's short enough that I think that this is actually a, a precise date. Sunday, July 24th. From 0612 to 0629 hours UTC. So that's just the right window for launching to the space station. So unless um, it's a little bit of a gas based on the NOTAM, I think that's exactly when it's going to be launching. And, of course, this is going to be launching out of the Wanchang uh, Satellite Launch Center. I don't see a pad number. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Chinese space station. Uh, we, we love all space stations. <laughs> They're all awesome. Yeah. All right.
0: Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so let's it with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We
1: record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to Mike, Deskin, Colin, Chris, Delta B, Cy Kyle, Zach of Breaking Taps, Dave M, Dirt, and The Greek for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you.
2: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit the Orbital Mechanics com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources
0: for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you
1: can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the
0: that's it we will see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you